Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Greetings and welcome to Hell. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, doing the do on Clay Fighter 2. And I am Ash Versus, and Luke, I am the most funniest. This episode aired on the 8th of... I mean, that's not... That's not yeah, I'm not debating that. This episode aired on the 8th of November, 1994. Sonic and & Knuckles and SimCity 2000 topped their charts, while Burn Cycle on the CDI, of all things, is top of the all-consoles charts, and it's no change at the top of either of the other box offices. Pato Benson is still top of the pops, and Lion King is still top of the UK box office. I'm assuming it must have been a slow release week for a lot of platforms because I can't imagine there are that many fucking CDIs in homes. I mean, Burn Cycle was kind of pretty good. It was certainly very strongly reviewed for the CDI and it did also see releases for Mac and PC, although they got a bit more of a mixed result. Although I suspect part of that is because it was a much more crowded field. But um, but yeah, what a, what a bizarre turnabout of events that leads to the CDI topping the charts for anything really i honestly didn't think it would happen not in our timeline i honestly didn't think it would top any charts are we definitely still in our timeline have we kind of gone into a parallel universe crap were we looking for marbles we were looking for marbles nice throwback to last episode well done (laughs) it's actually two episodes ago now but it's still today for us in our recording schedule we are now on episode four of a one-day recording marathon, and Whoa. I'm actually feeling surprisingly chipper. I mean, I've got a cup of tea sat in front of me. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I mean, we have got one release uh, this week that we could talk about. I mean, we're, and there's not much to talk about because we talked about it quite a bit, but it's Super Street Fighter 2 on the 3D Oak. Uh, it's released in the US. And a bit of TV news, November 7th, 
Barbara Windsor makes her EastEnders debut as Peggy Mitchell. Phil? Phil? Now this was at a point when I was still watching a bit of EastEnders and this was very much a career renaissance for Barbara Windsor, albeit mostly limited to soap operas. But up until that point, she was really known as, you know, as Babs. Babs from the Carry On movies. She was a small giggly blonde that frequently lost her bra and or top. Yeah. And here she was as the matriarch of the Mitchell family. And at various times, quite a nasty piece of work. Yelling at people to get out of her pub. I mean, the Mitchell, if, if I remember correctly, the Mitchell brothers were already were already well established in EastEnders at this point and also quite well established as the bad boys. How do you make them look less bad? You give them Peggy Mitchell, you know, <laughs> a good foot shorter in stature, but four foot higher in kind of raw, malicious energy. I mean, she wasn't an actual villain, but you certainly didn't cross Peggy. Yeah, this is something I didn't know is because there'd been another actor that played the role like in the early 90s. Really? I, I just, yeah, I just assumed that Babs was a character they brought, like, Babs, they'd be, sorry, they brought Babs in. I think some Babs was the character. They brought Babs in to play the role of Peggy Mitchell, but apparently, I, I mean, I'm going by Wikipedia here, the character had previously been played by Joe Warren in 1991. That is kind of shocking. I'd completely blanked on that. And I was definitely kind of off and on watching EastEnders at this point. But I guess it shows how powerful Babs' performance was and how much of a major player they made her in the show. Yeah. I mean, she was brought into the show, and if I remember correctly, she actually died on screen in the show. Did she really? She eventually left the show by her own hand in 2016. She actually wow. took an overdose. She, she committed suicide as a character. Bloody hell. Apparently, Peggy received a vision of her old friend, Pat Butcher. Oh... <laughs> <laughs> I might have known it was you. Were your earrings rattling like Marley's bleeding chains? What? These are my favourites. Mm. I think I look smashing. Yeah, you do. But look at the state of me, though. Hey? State of me? I'm like a little old bird that's fallen out of its nest. Anyway, shift yourself, you mad old tart. I've got stuff to do. So you'll have just heard a bit of that, but... Yeah, you've got Peggy Mitchell sat there and holy shit, I'd forgotten how much Babs aged during her time on the show. I mean, makeup obviously makes her look older and she's at a point where she's meant to look haggard and certainly, well, she's about to end her own life. But it's so surreal seeing Pam St. Clement as Pat Butcher sat in the background of that scene because she'd left EastEnders like four or five years earlier and there she is reunited with Barbara Windsor. Barbara Windsor, of course, who sadly passed away last year although something i didn't know but i'm quite happy to see is that pam st clement and all her crazy earrings they're still knocking about out there that is delightful to see that's really nice to see yeah she's an animal lover a clean conservationist and does a lot of work for the rspca and hearing dogs for deaf people and all those sorts of things so you know good honor for that 
I was just having a quick read as well on the 3DO port of Street Fighter 2 Turbo, which we get um, here in the UK later on this month. It's like late November it comes out. Um, it said that it's a pretty good conversion of it, although it doesn't support parallax scrolling and it's missing some animations on characters. Super versions of characters aren't present either. The load times are fairly short, but yeah, the, it seems to be a, a fairly decent one. The most interesting thing about it though is that Capcom released a special controller for the 3DO to play Street Fighter on. I'm going to send it across to you on WhatsApp. I'm going to send you a picture of it so you can see this contraption because I'd be very curious to see whether you would be on board for this controller. Oh, I remember this one. I would be on board with that. And if you look up this uh, Capcom 3DO controller, it is very much designed for people that would play thumb on D-pad and then the crab hand. This actually looks like it would be way more comfortable to play with than you would think. That's what I was thinking. When I was looking at it, I was like, this looks like it's specifically designed for crab hand play. Yeah, I, I would actually like to try this controller at some point. I think that could be uh, that could be interesting. Well, Ash, when you get your 3DO, when you use the under consultation kitty to get yourself a little 3DO, make sure you get yourself a Street Fighter 2 pad for it as well. Welcome to Games Master, where it's hotter than a pair of Tabasco flavored pants. But don't worry, because tonight we are washing those pants in new, improved, biological fun. Because on this show we have... Ridge, Ridge Racer! A skid-marked frenzy with an exclusive showing of Ridge Racer on the Sony PlayStation. That's later on in the wash cycle. Meanwhile, it's time to dip our smalls in the rest of the show. So, for challenge number one, let's go over to Games Master. Now, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident on this one as well, that the Ridge Racer stuff that we get in this episode was very last minute and it was a last minute decision that they were going to you know build this whole episode around at the end of the show we're going to have this big preview of ridge racer and the only reason i came to that conclusion is that dominic never talks about ridge racer on camera it's only ever in voiceover and he does throw to a final challenge at the end of the show despite the fact that at the start of this he sets up there's a ridge racer feature coming later on so i figure that they there was a challenge in this episode and they basically just pff, throw it to the cutting room floor because as we, when Dominic was uh, you know, speaking with us in our interview, he was talking about if they had news, he wanted to have it in episodes before somebody else got it. So that, that's kind of my feeling on that. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing because, you know, Dominic said woe betide if bad influence broke a piece of news before us. And not only do we get Ridge Racer here, but a piece of the upcoming news section is so hot off the presses, it must have been filmed and edited in the weekend before broadcast. Yeah, this is this whole episode feels very much like this is a very news-heavy episode. We do have two challenges uh, in this episode. You know, we've got the seventh challenge later on on Clay Fighter 2. We've got the first uh, challenge, which is actually it's quite a fun little challenge, really. But like this whole episode, as you say, because we've got the Sega Saturn thing and the Ridge Racer thing later on, as well as the regular feature they had in this. Very news heavy, this episode. Now, Luke, important question about this open, and now it's a visual gaffe. We'll have to set the scene for the listeners who may, for some reason, have not have watched this episode in advance. While Dom is talking about his Tabasco-flavoured pants, he is dosing up a couple of plates with some killer-strength hot sauce, which is then eaten by the goblins, who promptly die. Now, if people who die on this mortal realm go to heaven or hell... And if they go to hell, they may go to this particular level of purgatory with Dominic Diamond and the Games Master. What happens to the goblins when they die already in hell and or purgatory? 
uh, they go to Hell 2, which is a lot like Hell 1, but it's basically just data disks. It is just data disks. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up for me. And well done for thinking that up on the fly. <laughs> well, let's get into our first challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? My first challenge is something of a stinker. A skill test from the Super Nintendo racing game Power Drive. Players have one minute to prove their ability by performing five precision maneuvers. First, to stop their vehicle with the white line between the front and the back wheels. Second, to reverse exactly into a parking space. Third, to negotiate a rather bendy road. Fourth, to wind their way between some traffic cones. And finally, to stop precisely within the exit box. Gentlemen, start your engines. Is it just me or have they upgraded Games Master somewhat? He does look a bit shinier, doesn't he? Like, yeah. he, the video clarity is a bit higher. And I genuinely couldn't tell if that meant that their production of him was being done a bit better. Or are these episodes from a slightly lower generation VHS tapes? Or were these tapes recorded on slow play rather than long play? That's a possibility, because my thought was that... Because Games Master introduces Ridge Racer later on. And so if the whole Ridge Racer thing was a late edition they would have had to go back to Patrick Moore to film something extra. So maybe they didn't have like the original costume ready or left or anything like that. So they just had to put this new one on him and also redo this one. I don't know, but like it's it does look a lot better. This game's a little bit of fun, isn't it? This looks something a fair bit different. I mean, I'll be honest with you, because you've got to do five. You've got one minute to do five of these maneuvers. And that bit where you're going around the cones in a spiral... That looks absolutely nails. This is one of those rare occasions where I have come across a game in a challenge and I've immediately gone to make sure that I've got it on my little retro 531 because I'm like, I want to play this game. This game looks fun. I love these skill-based challenges. And this is, this is a skill-based challenge. This isn't necessarily who's the fastest, although there is a one-minute time limit, but this is all about the skill. And it is, spoilers, frustrating that no one actually nails it. However, the way in which they don't nail it is at times absolutely fucking hilarious. Oh man, the amount of times I burst out laughing during this. We'll get to it in a moment. But yeah, I've never even heard of this game. Like, the only time I've seen it is through this challenge on, the, on Games Master. It is a current game. It's 1994, developed by Rage Software. It is a rally-driving game, so this is not the main portion of the game. This is kind of a training-slash-skill mode? That's what I figured, yeah. That, that's kind of what I assumed it was. A bit like um, Gran Turismo, where you have to like get your driver's license and things like that. And it was released for the SNES, and in fact, for the SNES, it was only released in Europe. wasn't released in America, probably because of a lack of interest in rally-driving, but the Mega Drive did get it in America, but only as part of the Sega channel. Oh, really? Yeah, the kind of downloadable, collect yeah, connectable yeah. thingamajig, kind of like Satellaview for, mm -hmm. for, the, for the Mega Drive, or Genesis, as I guess it would be called. However, it was released also for the Game Gear and is considered to be one of the rarest games on the Game Gear format. Last year, a copy of this game sold for over 4,000 euros. I feel that the sentence also got released on the Game Gear has been said a lot recently on this show. I honestly, I thought the Game Gear was dead on its ass at this point, but man, it's still getting a lot of stuff being released for it. I mean, the fact that this game was produced in such low quantities that it goes for over 4,000 euros now shows that actually, yeah, the Game Gear was 
dead on its ass. Yeah, maybe. Absolute dead seagull on a beach territory here. The batteries officially ran out. Oh, yeah. No replacing these ones. They've corroded the contacts. Either that or your dad is doing like, I'm not buying you any more fucking double A's for that thing. So with brain firmly in neutral, let's meet our challengers. They are Ricky Nguyen, Mervyn Chong and Tom Homer. Now, Ricky, we asked you before the show which video game character you fancied. You said none because you have a girlfriend. What's your girlfriend like? Good looking and attractive. Really? And uh, what's her name? Emma. Would you like to say hello to her? Hi. I bet she's really impressed now with that one, actually, Ricky. I think you'll have a long and fruitful relationship now. Mervyn, what's this on your jacket? Ecstasy. I bet you think you're really hard because you've got that on, don't you? <laughs> All right, thank you, Mervyn. Tom, how are you doing? All right. Now, Tom, uh, you also said you're quite into music as well. What sort of bands do you like? I mean, the Nirvana. Nirvana. Can you sing at all, Tom? No, not really. Because they're looking for a lead singer now, aren't they? The uh, This has got some great lines in all of this because, you know, like we turn to Ricky, he's like, no, I don't fancy any video game characters because I've got a girlfriend. Oh, yeah, she's called Emma. Say hello to her. She's in Canada. <laughs> Dominic, proper burying Mervyn because he's got ecstasy written on And it looks like they can't show it on TV either, but he's got ecstasy written on his top. Thinks he looks really cool. And Dominic goes like, I bet you think you look really hard because you've got that on, don't you? And Mervyn doesn't blink and he's like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> oh, God. It really, really made me laugh. And then, fucking hell, Dominic. My notes for this next joke just said, Luke is going to have opinions. <laughs> He turns to Tom and he's just like, oh, you know, uh, you're into music. Yeah, I'm into Nirvana. You could join them. They're looking for a new singer. I was like, Christmas Day. That is a joke. <laughs> something cold in the ground, Dom. Uh, my exact phrasing, other than Luke is going to have words on this, <laughs> is, and get your swear jar ready, Dom, Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> it was in April. They would have recorded this in, like, June. I mean, there's gallows humour, and then there's they're still swinging. I mean, good <laughs> God. I am legitimately amazed that this bit went to air. Same here. I'm stunned this made it past censors. This is, like, kind of Mark Lamar, never mind the Buzzcocks level edge. I, it honestly, like, spit my tea out levels of, like, bloody hell, I cannot believe he said that on television. Incredibly harsh, but also well-crafted. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't admit that I, I didn't laugh. <laughs> we both laughed. We both felt very bad. Very bad about it. Dom, you're a bad influence. No, not that bad influence. No, no, no. An actual bad influence. <laughs> First up, license news. Star Wars programmers JVC are busy beavering away on a video game version of the soon-to-be-released movie based on Dark Horse comic Time Cop. In a departure from previous roles, Jean-Claude Van Damme fights people. In my future, you're dead. He goes back in time to retrieve the plot by wiping out a nasty president of the future. The game is out in March. Have we, uh, have we talked about Time Cop on this podcast before? I feel like it's the sort of movie you and I would have talked about. We have definitely talked about Van Damme. It's either been Double Impact, which we did talk about as a film, mm -hmm. or Street Fighter, which we talked about as a film, and we will talk about again. And I think you will probably be taking the lead on that particular episode of the podcast because you've got some prior experience on the film. I, I, I think I've, I've seen a few things, yeah read a book on it yeah i've read a book on it <laughs> and we talked about hard target which was a number one film for us for a week a week and a day 
It's worth saying that when we did talk about Hard Target, we actually spent less time talking about Van Damme and I spent more time talking about Wilford Brimley. (laughs) But here's Time Cop and we're looking a little bit at the movie, but also we're talking about the game. The game, which is a JVC game based on a JCVD film, which is based on a Dark Horse comic. I, uh, I like Time Cop. I've got quite a bit of time for it. You know, this was sort of like part of like the Dark Horse branching things out. We've got the mask uh, off of their Dark Horse deal. Now we're getting um, Time Cop here. We'll get, we'll get Barb Wire as well uh, at some point soon. It, it's not a great film by any stretch of the imagination, but I do like its premise. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of that. I don't think I've ever played the game of it, though. I think I have, but more in that kind of, okay, it's the future now. I've got access to all these ROMs of games. I'm going to play any title that seems familiar or looks interesting. And of course, I remember Time Cop. I remember the Dark Horse adaptation. I remember the film coming out. And so it kind of appealed. Amazingly, despite the fact that this movie, never mind the game, is a bit shovelware, it's also Van Damme's highest grossing film as a lead. Because this is now, this is like PG-13 era, or getting into PG-13 era uh, Van Damme as well. Like this, you know, Street Fighter was, uh, it was in his contract that it had to be PG-13 so that he could get uh, more butts in seats, so to speak. So this is kind of, again, leaning into that side of his career now. And as I mentioned before, it started as a comic, which was actually a three-part story. It was part of the Dark Horse Presents range, so it wasn't an ongoing series. The Mask was. The Mask was an ongoing series, and I think Barbed Wire was as well, but this wasn't. This was a limited-run comic. Mike Richardson developed the story, and whilst he developed the story, the comic was in turn written by Mark Verheiden, and the comic told the story of Max Walker, a time enforcement agent whose wife is implied to be dead, travels back in time, robs a South African diamond mine in the 1930s, yada, yada, yada. And essentially, eventually kind of in a very weird, hey, this is your cousin Marvin Berry way, helps end apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. Richardson and Verheiden then teamed up to write the screenplay for the movie adaptation, which is kind of a bit more standard in that it involves Van Damme as Max Walker uh, travelling back in time uh, to take out a corrupt politician that's kind of f***ing up the future. Yeah. Basically, Walker fights time travel crime and investigates the politician's plans. That's it. It's a much more it's a much more simple story, definitely much less controversial. Mm-hmm. And while critically didn't exactly set the world alight, but commercially did very well. It was also at one point going to be a Sam Raimi film. Yeah, because he's a producer on the film. It's kind of a shame because I would have liked to have seen him kind of like take this one. I would like to see what he could have done to control the beast that was Van Damme's ego and coke habit. And coke habits, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was the first instalment in the Time Cop franchise, franchise in bunny ears, because it wasn't exactly the most wide-ranging franchise. No, it's got one of those like director home video sequels later on, where it's like we're just cashing in on the the, the name of Time Cop. Uh, it's Time Cop to the Berlin decision. Shockingly, Ashley, maybe you surprised at this. Van Damme did not return for this 2003 movie. Ten years later, I mean, really, what was he actually doing at that point? Instead, it's Jason Scott Lee in the role, um, who, you know, we had seen recently because he was Bruce Lee in Dragon. And in 2014, they were apparently going to do a reboot of Time Cop, but it's, um, it's, and that really, that was because Looper was a success at the box office. 
but they haven't really done much else of it. There was a TV series, though, which I, I don't particularly remember, but I, I know that there was a TV series based on it. Time Cop, the TV series, was a bit like Time Tracks. It was a bit more wide-ranging to the point where there were a number of guest stars of different kind of people throughout history. Famous fictionalised characters that appeared in those nine episodes include Elliot Ness, Al Capone, H.G. Wells, Hitler, and Ulysses S. Grant. Always tackling the big guns when you bring a Hitler into something, aren't you? I think we've just found candidate number two for our terrible 90s genre <laughs> fiction vote-off. <laughs> this now joins Thunder in Paradise. Very, very nice. Um, we do have a video game connection as well with Time Cop, just outside of the, the game itself, because one of the producers on Time Cop, who was actually like the man who, after the success of The Mask, spearheaded the, the Dark Horse kind of branching out and you know and, and sort of selling things off and that a lad named todd moyer he was the guy who was the liaison between dark horse and and uh, hollywood because he was the producer on time cop he was then also the producer on barbed wire he was going to do like a whole host of these things unfortunately and it didn't really sort of pan out for him but he was also the producer on the wing commander movie man we keep coming back to that wing commander movie it just keeps cropping up it was in that book i read i've read that book too <laughs> Writing that chapter, I would imagine for the person who wrote it, was very much just like a war of words between the uh, between Chris Roberts and Todd Moyer, who just I just don't seem to get on professionally whatsoever. Man, whoever wrote that book must have been a real pro to find a balance between those two warring perspectives. Well, yeah, sounds like a great guy. Anyway, the game's out in March. <laughs> and whilst this game only came out for the snares, it did expand upon the time periods covered in the film ranging from New York of the 1920s to the European front of World War II to the present day to a dystopian LA future. And guess what, Luke? What's that, Ash? There was a version developed for the Sega CD that was announced but never released until 2007 when the Sega CD converter, the version coder himself, released the game onto the internet. Wow. I might check that out because, I'm, you know, I'm going to try and uh, play a few more of these sorts of games like in the lead up of what we do series four so that might be one that i check out well if you don't have time you can also check it out on the awful games done quick block oh uh, gdq yeah they 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 basically riff on this as a uh, terrible speed run Oof. well maybe i'll watch it on that instead then i come from the net through systems peoples and cities to this place this is Mainframe, setting for the first 100% computer-generated TV series. Reboot stars Bob, guardian of the mainframe, his mates the Data Sprites, and official nasty bloke Megabyte. All I ask is a simple favour, and you put us through all this. The 13-episode series has been three years and thousands of computer hours in the making. Those weird blue and green blokes and birds will be on ITV after Christmas, though I reckon the one-handed George and Zippy from Rainbow would have these guys in a fight. Reboot! I come from the net systems, peoples, and cities to this place. Mainframe. My format, Guardian. To mend and defend. To defend my newfound friends, their hopes and dreams. To defend them from their enemies. Now, Ash, this next bit of news. Oh, this is, man, this is eight-year-old Luke's, like, go-to new thing like because when he turns like eight nine years old he is big into reboot i loved this show this is alphanumeric and my favorite thing about this little feature is at no point does dom shit on reboot 
That would have broken my heart because I was a fan of Reboot then. I'm still a fan of it now. I love having that show on box set. I do actually think season three is the best season. I think it's the one where they realized that they were not marketing to kids anymore, that kids were not really interested in Reboot. So they kind of kept it so kids could watch it. But they definitely put a lot more humor and stories in there for the adults. The other thing that helped as well when you get into series three is that they parted ways with ABC. And with ABC come standards and practices. And standards and practices were like really hammering down on this show. They wanted to change her boobs. Like they made her change her boob shape because it was too sexualized. They gave her a uniboob, didn't they? Yeah, they in fact called it the monoboob. Like that is the official name for her chest is because like they felt it was too sexualized there was a moment when uh they referenced hockey in an episode and they were like no because that is a euphemism for um a sexual act and the other one that kind of like blew the minds of um gavin blair uh, he did this interview with wired talking about the show is that there's an episode towards the end of series two where dot gives enzo her little brother a little kiss on the cheek and standards and practices ask for them to remove that because they said it promotes incest. Gavin says in this interview, he's just like, I can't honestly get my mind to think in those terms. It's one of the sickest things I've ever heard. How do those people sleep at night? Probably in their big expensive houses that they get by raking in money by basically providing absolutely fucking ludicrous connections. Yeah, we've talked a lot about that with the real Ghostbusters episode of UCP Extra. Now, this is the first 100% CG TV series to be made and stars Bob and his mates versus Megabyte, who's the big virus. This is very much an idea that was in gestation for years and years. I think it actually started back in the mid 80s. So Yeah, it was at 84 that the hub got together to kind of like put this together. That's, that's crazy. 84. That is someone that was heavily influenced by Tron. And I don't think they'd be too mad if you suggested that because it's impossible yeah, not to draw the parallels. I'm a big fan of Reboot. I love the show to death. I think it was absolutely groundbreaking and they were also so cool. Like I go back and watch it now and there are jokes in there that I get now because they were making pop culture references I didn't get as a teenager. Teenage me at that point would not have necessarily gotten a prisoner reference, but there is an entire episode based around the prisoner. I'm looking forward to talking about this show more with you because we did agree that when this starts airing in our timeline, which will be after Christmas, we're going to do an under consultation extra episode on one of those first 13 episodes of Reboot. So we'll do something from season one. I'm really looking forward to that as well. And we'll dive into a little bit more then as well. And um, if you are like desperate for more information on Reboot, I can really recommend the What A Cartoon podcast episode they did on this show because they did like a huge deep dive into this and the voice cast because the show's very Canadian with very Canadian actors um, and Tony J. So yeah, I'm, I'm super looking forward to, to diving into that. And we will not talk about the modern series that debuted on Netflix, which is The Drizzling Shits. <gasps> oh, is it bad? I haven't seen it. It's the worst. It is <laughs> absolutely, absolutely terrible. It's bad. And the people that made it should feel bad. Oh, that's such a shame. Sega's new console, the Saturn, is released today in Tokyo. But when some bloke in a pub said he'd seen one in Chingford yesterday, we sent the boys around to investigate. We met Simon Leung, who runs an import-export business, like most blokes. Hey, oh. First day I heard we had our Saturns in Hong Kong. On Friday I had them shipped out to me to Heathrow. On Saturday morning, 8-5am, I picked them up, and by lunchtime I sold my first Saturn. 
An import machine with Virtual Fighters from Simon costs 570 notes. The official one will cost 300 quid, but it's not due till August 1995. But it's okay, Ash, you don't have to focus on that, mate, because here's a news item that is, like, almost tailor-made for you, mate. Oh, my notes in all caps is Sega Saturn boot sequence, baby! (laughs) (laughs) This is import-exports of the brand new Sega Saturn. The Sega Saturn's here, Ash. In our timeline, the Saturn's here. The Sega Saturn launches today in our timeline but this guy has had them since the Saturday before. So released in Tokyo today, but obviously shipping from Hong Kong, where it's made, and not all of them went to Japan. Some of them came to a guy in Chingford. Named Simon. And he explains that they arrived in Hong Kong on Friday. He had them shipped out to him via Heathrow, which he then picked up at 5am Saturday morning. And by lunchtime Saturday, he'd already sold his first Saturn. And it ain't cheap either. You get this thing with a copy of Virtual Fighter, it's 570 notes. But that's the price of getting one early, because while it will apparently cost £300 when it releases in the UK, that's not going to be until August 1995. That was what we all thought. That That is genuinely what we thought. It would be out in August and it would cost 300 notes. The reality is it was released in July and cost 400. Got a little bit shafted on that. You know, if I'd had insight that it was going to cost that much more... And also, let's be honest, the PAL Saturn was a bit biffed. I mean, there's a reason the one behind me is a Japanese one. I'd have probably gone for the import because you'd have still got all the good games. Uh, I mean, we've talked a lot in the last few weeks about this war between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. And I really feel like this, the Saturn release, is the final nail in that war. Like it's, you know, it's what pushed Tom Kalinske out the door inevitably like that was that was kind of it for for his run with sega because they had a plan they were going to release this thing on a saturday it was going to be saturday september 2nd 1995 saturn day because they've had great success at sega with doing these themes days sonic tuesday and all this sort of stuff a mortal monday not a sega thing but you know like they were involved with that arguably they were the ones that benefited the most from mortal monday 100 uh, percent. this was the plan the Saturn was selling so well in Japan and the Mega Drive wasn't that the Sega of Japan basically just told them, look, we're worried about the PlayStation. Release it now. Get ahead of the curve. But they just released the 32X. They've just released the Mega CD. They didn't want to just flood the market with another bit of hardware. And in the end, Sega of Japan overruled them. And so at the E3 in May in 1995, Tom Kalinske went up on stage to introduce the Sega Saturn. And in that press conference, he didn't give you a release day. He told you it's available now. Here's another. We started our rollout of Sega Saturn yesterday. We were at retail today at 1800 Toys R Us, etc., and electronic boutique stores around the U.S. and Canada. Our retail price is between $399 and $449. We have 10 software titles at retail in the next few days, 20 by August. Our total rollout will take the summer to complete, but we're starting today in store and starting today on primetime TV with these commercials. Sega Saturn is not only here now, it's out there. You can walk across the road and you can walk into a store and buy your Sega Saturn right now, and it will cost you $400. 
which is, you know, a great big sort of bombshell to drop and be like, a, oh my God, they've released the Sega Saturn immediately. We don't have to wait until Saturn day. That's great. Retailers were pissed because all of a sudden they just had a shipment of stuff dropped at their feet being like, can you stock this, please? We need to sell it quickly. We need to get it on shelves now. KB Toys dropped them. Walmart were fuming at Sega and caused a massive rift between them. But the huge kick in the teeth from all of this and the thing that really, really sunk the Saturn is that Sony's Olaf Olafsson, who was next up on stage to do the PlayStation announcement, he didn't say two words, he said three numbers. 299. And he walked off stage. And that was it. Sega Saturn was dead on arrival. When I was doing my monster note-taking session on Saturday and I was talking about how we had this thing on the Saturn and I was chatting with my partner about it. And Sol was the one that immediately brought up the price heard around the world. And it is probably the most mic drop moment in any gaming conference that I can think of. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. That won the war. Before it even started, you're cutting $100. The retailer's going to be on your side because Sega has pissed them off. Sega was starting not just a man down, but half a team down. They were they were stuffed. And then what are Sega left with? They're struggling to sell the Saturn, struggling to sell the 32X, struggling to sell the Mega CD because they've got nothing but mixed messages. It's like, well, we've got this 32-bit add-on, but you could also buy our 32-bit machine. We've also got a CD add-on, but you could buy our CD machine. It was just a complete mess. And really, like, and it's, it's easy to paint them as the villains, but I, I think the blame of this does come down onto Sega of Japan. Absolutely. And like we talked a little bit before when we were talking about the 32X about ways they could have rescued it, about kind of fantasy booking the 32-bit development for Sega. And it's worth saying that while we were chatting before this recording, between Series 4 and Series 5 is when both the Saturn and the PlayStation essentially are launched here in Europe. And a couple of our between-season episodes will be focusing on those European launches as kind of part of our timeline. Much like we did a between-season episode between Series 3 and 4, we're going to go there again, but the focus will be the arrival of the PlayStation and the arrival of the Saturn. And one of those episodes is going to be joyous and the other is not. Because <laughs> I think, like, it, you can't ignore them, like, within our timeline. Like, those, are, those two releases are monumental releases. We're still a good couple of months off recording those episodes. And already now, I think we can be talking about how Sony... They came out of nowhere and they immediately started to dominate. And Sega had everything to lose and they kind of did. Oh, but yeah. uh, that's, a, that's a story for a different episode, Luke, and I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. But still, if you need to get a Sega Saturn in uh, November 1994, go and see if you can find Simon. It'll cost you 570 quid, but it's probably worth it. Indeed, because you'll get to enjoy the Saturn for a good amount of while before you get buyer's remorse. And you were talking about, like, you think this is like a last-minute thing that they put in into the edit. And, like, this is filmed in this lad's living room as well. Yeah, there was a very quick run the vacuum round with a shake and vac beforehand. <laughs> more than that, I would argue that this was actually filmed more with a prosumer camera than one of the full Channel 4 cameras because there was a noticeable dip in video quality and the lighting is using ambient lighting. There's no pro lights just out of shot this is done last minute and this is breaking news yeah i mean it's very orange the footage is very very orange we're almost ready for the power drive challenge all that remains is for me to introduce my backseat driver for the trip and it's steve merritt from e machines welcome steve i done steve now what's your favorite part of a car 
Well, I've got perfect clutch control, so I think I'll opt for that. No, I thought you'd maybe be a spigot man. No, definitely a clutch man. No, interesting. Um, about the challenge now, Steve, what's the toughest part of the course? It's the second to last bit. There's this spiral of cones, and you've got to manoeuvre the car through without actually hitting any. For every cone you hit, it costs you valuable time. And as you've only got a minute anyway, you can't afford to do that. That's right. Each contestant has one minute in which to complete the course. The contestant who finishes it in the quickest time will win the joystick. What's your favourite part of the car, Luke? I mean, what is my favourite part of a car? Do you know what? was recently posting up some photos on, on the old social media of my university radio days because uh, I had a mohawk at the time and people were making fun of like how silly I would look with a mohawk. And I was like, lads, I can tell you right now, I do look silly. Here's his video. There's actual photo evidence to prove that I would look very silly with a mohawk. I was talking to my co-host Denise about this and said like, funny enough, that mohawk that I had and that sort of like outfit that I was wearing that day, that We Play t-shirt that I was wearing, I was wearing that to impress a girl. I was wearing that to impress my co-host for that day because she brought me in to like guest on her show and she was doing blind dates on the radio with a guy calling in and me. And I was essentially there to be the ringer, like because she was always going to like go on the date with the the, the guy that she, that called in that was you know from university and whatever. Um, and it would just be a, a fun bit of radio and stuff. And uh, but I kind of still wanted to win because I wanted to impress the girl and whatnot. And the first question that we got, I got asked on a, this blind date show was, if you were a part of a car, what car would you be? And I could not think of the fucking word for the gear shift. Now, the only the gear shift, the handbrake, I couldn't think of the word. I didn't drive at the time. I couldn't think of the word for the handbrake. And in the end, I remembered, I was like, handbrake, because I'm long, hard, and you need me to get going. It went down like a fucking lead balloon. And... <laughs> So when you asked me then, what's your favorite part of the car? I was like, I mean, obviously it's the handbrake, isn't it? Because it's, I'm long, hard, and you need me to get going. I mean, I've got to admire the innuendo game there. I'd have laughed. Thanks, mate. For me, it's the glove compartment, because you can tell a lot about a person by the contents of their glove compartment. Okay, so I can tell you what's in my glove compartment. Go for it. So in my glove compartment is, because uh, I drive now, in my glove compartment is, it's not a tyre compressor, but it's like thing that you can like pump up your tyres with. Uh, check that it's a tyre pressure gauge. So I've got my tyre gotcha. pressure gauge. I've got all of my documentation for the car. Very smart. And I have got a DVD of the stop motion animation movie I made when I was at university. Okay. <laughs> Let's rewind a second. <laughs> Is that just on the off chance that you like kind of need to distract a police officer? Like you get pulled <laughs> over for speeding and you're like, let me just find my driving license. Oh, do you like stop motion? <laughs> have you ever heard of Toy Gory? It was made in 2007. Okay, well, we're back up again. Why have I not seen Toy Gory? You know that's my kind of thing. It's on YouTube. The full thing's up on YouTube. Mate. Oh, man. I'm going to go and watch that. I will send you a link to it after we've recorded here. Please do. It's five minutes. And you want to talk about, uh, I've got my terrible mohawk in that as well. Awesome. I'm wearing a Freddy versus Jason t-shirt that's about three sizes too big for me. I was very skinny at the time. But yeah, uh, and the, okay, to answer your question as to why that's in my glove box, I keep forgetting it to take it into the house. And so like I open up the glove box to get documentation. I was like, oh yeah, I've got that DVD here. I need to take that in the house. And then I just clo close it and forget about it again. And it's been there for about four years at this point. I reckon you'll probably sell that car. And even then <laughs> you'll get to the point of selling it and you'll just go, bugger. I forgot to take that DVD out of the car. Yeah. God, I hope YouTube doesn't crash and burn. This is the only thing I've got left of it. Um, that's my glove compartment. What does it say about me? I think it says you're quite forgetful, but a man who likes to know his tires are of the correct pressure. Oh, yeah. And it could save you a, gave you a load of money every single year. 
This is one of the most boring things I've ever said on this podcast, but it's, it's true. If you have a car, check your tyre pressure. Just to peel back the curtain, by the way, we are now on our fourth episode of the day. And just before we started recording, Luke was congratulating me and himself of going, we've really stayed focused and we've done a great job. <laughs> and at this point in time, we are 57 minutes into recording this episode and we're talking about <laughs> glove compartments. We're off the rails, man. Yeah, I think what we've found is when we do mega day records, our last session is an absolute train wreck. <laughs> do you know what the mistake was? The mistake was that we congratulated each other and we relaxed. We should have stayed under pressure. Got complacent, mate. Anyway, back to the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but like, okay, so this challenge here. So Ricky's up first, does the first bit fine. And then he goes to do the reversing into the uh, parking bay and fucks it up royally. <laughs> oh, this is like watching my mum reverse into a car parking space. Including the crunch, 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 crunch. And just, <laughs> the thing, when he does eventually get the hold of reversing, he doesn't get the hold of braking. And all of them do this, is they all just kind of keep reversing into the tyre wall. And the guy won't raise his flag until they've stopped. It, it takes him, like, honestly, 28 seconds. Half of his time has been spent just trying to get that, to reverse park into that space. He then goes on to the winding road bit, which is kind of approached much like a pinball going through a bumper section is boing, 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 boing. But hey, he reaches the cones. Maybe he can get redemption here. It should be noted that for every cone you hit, it adds 10 seconds onto your time or removes 10 seconds from your time. When you've only got a minute, that's a lot to remove. And he just hits the cones and just collides into more of them and all of his time runs out. He plows into those cones like he's playing Grand Theft Auto and they're the Harry Krishnas. And yeah, one minute gone, did not complete the challenge. Dominic Diamond tells us that Mervyn is his favourite. I'm going to presume because of his jumper. And also his moxie. Yeah, maybe his moxie as well, yeah. And he is better at this. Like, you know, he does the second bit, does the reverse parking bay uh, only after 15 seconds. And that was with a pause as well. So like, you know, uh, he's doing okay with this. But, you know, when he's doing the wibbly wobblies, you mentioned pinball here. It's a good job there's no damage meter on this car because all three of oh, them yeah. just, I just, I'm just going to drive straight and I would just get bounced to the end. I suspect what they were hoping for here is a bit of drifting because it is a rally game. No drifting occurs. Now he gets to the spiral and this is when he goes into <laughs> granny parking mode for most of it. He crawls around the spiral, but he's actually doing pretty good. And then... For no apparent reason, Led puts it, and he just barrels into these cones, and it is completely baffling. He doesn't just hit one cone, he hits about eight at once. Oh, he hits them like he's playing Carmageddon and he's looking for, like, humans for extra points. Like, it is just... Honestly, because you're right, it is so slow. It's painstakingly slow, and they're like, oh, he might have to hurry up in a little bit because he is going to run out of time. And he gets right to the end. And it's like his finger slips and he just puts his foot right down on the accelerator and just barrels through all of these cones. What a wally. So that's two down, Tom to go. Tom starts off. He then biffs the braking a bit. He manages to recover, but he does kind of like stutter a bit on it. Same with the parking, biffs it a little, but still manages it. Windy road, standard for this challenge, bouncing off the walls like they're bumpers in a pinball game. And again for the spiral, he's moving quite slowly, but he's doing okay. And then I think he's on the last turn when he just suddenly accelerates straight ahead and just <laughs> boom. And I'm wondering, and I haven't played this game, but I'm wondering if as your car turns, the perspective on the controls change. So like the turning the left and right change a bit, because it does feel like they get to a certain point in the turning and then the orientation of the car changes. I'm not sure, but it does feel to be a slight disconnect there. My thought was, I had two uh, ideas on this. A 
because it's a timed trial thing, you need to get like when you get to the center of the cones, all of the cones disappear and you can drive through to the end bit. They know that they haven't got a lot of time left. So they want to try and be accelerating as quickly as possible from they don't want to just wait for the cones to disappear, just want to belt it out there and get to the end. That's one theory. My other theory is that they all biffed it on purpose because it was much funnier that way for them to all just drive through the cones and all fail the challenge. I don't know if I believe that because of the amount of care that some of them put into the spiral. I think that's but, the. But I think that makes it funnier. As a viewer, it makes it a lot funnier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, but that, is, that, that really is an out there theory. I don't know. If, I have zero evidence to back that up. Oh, that's a proper foil hat level. Well done on that one. <laughs> okay, now uh, you first of all, Ricky. That wasn't terribly good, was it, Ricky? Nah. I've got a bit of bad news as well. You remember your girlfriend? Yeah. You know she's dumped you now? Nah. <laughs> she has, but there's plenty more fish in the sea, so you can console yourself with a kipper. Uh, Ricky, uh, Mervyn, I'm going to leave you just now, uh, gladly. Tom, uh, you did a bit better, but then what happened towards the end? I just lost it. I lost my nerve. Yeah. Have you found it yet, or are you still nerveless? I'm still nerveless. Okay, we'll have a look later on. Uh, Tom, finally, Mervyn, now you actually got very, very close, but we're still not going to give you a joystick anyway. Is that okay? No, I should, I should get it. Why? Because I'm the most funniest. Uh, I think you find that's the British Comedy Awards. Actually, that's a, that's a different show. But post-match, Dom's just like, Ricky, mate, your girlfriend's dumped you now based on that. I love that he pauses and she goes, nah. <laughs> And Dom's like, no, no, but you know, there's plenty more fish in the sea, so you can console yourself with a kipper, which I liked as a line, made me laugh. Yeah, yeah. He passes over Mervyn for a bit and goes on to Tom, who did a bit better, but asked what happened towards the end. And Tom says he just lost his nerve. Dom wants to know if he's found it yet, but Tom says no, he's still nerveless. And we come to Mervyn. You know, Dominic Diamond has saved him till last because he's his favourite. He's like, you came close. I almost feel like we should give you the, uh, the, the Golden Joystick Award anyway. And he says, yeah, you should, because I'm the most funniest. The most funniest. Not just the funniest, but the most funniest. The most funniest. And Dominic's just like, no, mate, you're thinking of the British Comedy Awards. That was brilliant. That was <laughs> such a slap down. That challenge. Like, when I saw it written down, and it was just power driving, I'm like, no, I don't think I'm going to get it. Like, driving challenges often are a bit boring at times. This was f***ing hilarious. I had so much fun with this, not just from a challenge perspective, but from like Dominic Diamond burying the kids as well. Like I, I had so much fun with this. This is the best bad challenge we've had in a long time. This is, this is literally car wreck television. First up, featuring more snakes than a Freudian dream, it's Pitfall, the Mayan adventure. Pitfall 2, the Mayan adventure, is um, a slick little platform game. It's actually based on a Atari VCS game called Pitfall 1, obviously, which was written 13 years ago. Fortunately for you lot, um, that's actually hidden inside this game, the complete Atari VCS game with crap sound and crap graphics. It's not really taking it any much further than, say, Jungle Book or Lion King, but it's a nice game nonetheless. There's lots to interact with, lots of nice weapons to use. You can use your boomerang or your slingshot with pebbles. And there's some nice ways that they integrate you with the landscape. If Earthworm Jim was the king of the jungle, then Pitfall would be a scragtag little puppy dog begging for food on a cold winter's night. However, Pitfall was the original platform game, so I suppose uh, Earthworm Jim should just be a little bit humble there. Um, yeah, this was, um, I, think, I think it was a pretty good score. Um, the problem is for Adrian, I guess, is that he's now played Earthworm Jim, and so every other platform is crap because it's not Earthworm Jim. 
And I think that is, I, I actually disagree with that comparison. I think the Pitfall reboot or sequel is actually pretty good. It was kind of part of an attempt by Activision to kind of revive some of their franchises from the Atari 2600 days. Kaboom was another, River Raid was another, and Croyer Films were brought in to basically help make it look way better than the Atari 2600 counterparts by going the Aladdin route, by going the Earthworm Jim route, and by going the Lion King route and doing hand-drawn animation and scanning it in. And if there's one thing you can definitely say about Pitfall, regardless of its gameplay, it looks great. The animation is super slick, super smooth, and it feels like a cartoon. And it was originally developed primarily for the SNES, but the lead platform did develop, did change over to the Mega Drive. The SNES version still emerged, however, and it also included ports for the 32X, the Game Boy Advance, the PC, the Sega CD, and the Atari Jaguar. Like, this is a game that not only had uh, development plans for the Jaguar, the Mega CD, and the 32X, the smoking came out. Like, it's pretty impressive going i feel bad for snes owners though because like as you were saying then like the build for this was on the snes and then for whatever reason they just switched it over to the mega drive and the snes port instead was released by a third party and wasn't quite as good although a beta of the snes version has since been released it's a little bit buggy but like since 2012 you can play the original snes version of this as it was meant to have been played when it was released in 94 and speaking of original but you can play the atari 2600 original they hit the entire thing inside the game which sounds a much bigger deal than it actually is because when i say the entire thing it's like what 16k of code oh yeah there's nothing to it whatsoever and also secret game within a game that means i can play the death tank theme <laughs> And I mentioned that this was part of a reboot of various franchises. This was, however, the only one to get a release. It was originally meant to release in 93, and obviously, as we see here, it came out in 1994, and Kaboom and River Raid were cancelled. Yeah, they did get previewed in a couple of magazines, but, man, nothing ever came of them. And I do wonder how much better this game would have done without Earthworm Jim as a comparison. I think this game would have actually done a lot better if it was just being compared to the Disney platformers of the day. And arguably, I think it might have done better than some of those games did uh, critically. Yeah, Frank says it's a slick little platformer. He also points out that the old Atari game is inside there. Tim does say, you know, it's not evolving the genre, but it's a nice game nonetheless. And then, yeah, Adrian is all about Earthworm Jim's the king of the jungle. Fuck this shit. <laughs> Pretty much. However, he does actually offer a bit of balance by going, but Pitfall was one of the original platform games, so maybe Earthworm Jim should be a little bit humble here. Yeah, and you know what? 81% is not a terrible score whatsoever. It's a fun game to play. It's worth checking out. Next, cynically smack into Damon Hill and pretend it was an accident in Virtua Racing Deluxe. Everything about the game has been improved, not just the graphics, which are now much more colourful, but also the polygons, which are more rounded, the speed, which is much smoother and faster, and also the sound. It's so much more bolstered up, and you really feel like you're in the heat of a race rather than just the sort of whiny noise that the Mega Drive made you in Virtual Racing. Virtual Racing on the Mega Drive and in the arcades only had the one car, the Virtual Formula, but you can now get two different types of cars. First is the stock car that can take a lot of damage and is very Daytona-like, and the second is the prototype car that is, is very high speed but hasn't got a lot of grip. Basically, this is a lot better than the Mega Drive version that appeared earlier this year, and it's a worthy buy if you're going to get a 32X. 
Mega32X is really showing what it can do here, and this is a fast, playable racing game. And with split-screen mode, it's fantastic fun for two players as well. This is, um, I mean, it gets 90% here because the 32X version of this game, like, it's just better than the Mega Drive one. Also, way less expensive as well because, you know, the Mega Drive one was £70 to buy. Um, so this is kind of like the, I mean, having said that, you do need to buy a 32X to play it. So I guess it doesn't work out that way. But it does also have the two extra cars and two extra tracks and things like that. And this is one of the handful of games that is spearheading the 32X launch and spearheading probably should be in Bucky O'Hare's because I've got a news article on this from Games Master Magazine. It's actually kind of fronting the network section. And even at the byline at the top, you know, the headline is Sega set for 32X to see. And it says November sees the launch of Sega's new 32-bit add-on for the Mega Drive. Weighing in at £150, the new add-on is the stopgap until the mighty Saturn appears next year. So even in the launch article, they're going, yeah, this is only meant to tide you over to next year, plus you need a Mega Drive, plus it's 150 quid. A stopgap, man, that's terrible. And listing the other titles that were set to coincide with the launch, we've got Doom and Star Wars Arcade, which we saw in the feature the other week. Also, Super Motocross, Super Afterburner, and Fahrenheit, which is essentially a Mega CD game, but with just slightly better video quality. Now, that's just sort of put over what we've been saying as well, which, you know, the graphics are better than the Mega Drive 1, you know, because they're more rounded uh, polygons. You've got Agent talking about the new cars. Frank O'Connor putting over the, you know, he's got split screen on it. So, you know, that's what the 32X can do. I think 90% is it's a really good score for this. And it, like, it will end up being, along with Star Wars, you know, one of the shining lights of the 32X overall. It's just such a shame that as a game, it was kind of old by the time it was here. And it wasn't like, oh, this is an exclusive. It was a case of, well, actually, no, Virtual Racing is already out on the Mega Drive and there's going to be a Saturn port as well. It wasn't going to push 32X sales, unfortunately. But 90%, still pretty good. And it's an exciting night for racing games because not only do we have Ridge Racer up later, but ooh, we get Nigel Mansell IndyCar. Finally, while we await the brilliant Ridge Racer, let's spend some time on the Duff Mansell IndyCar. Newman Horse IndyCar Challenge featuring Nigel Mansell. Um, Newman Horse IndyCar Challenge featuring rubbish graphics and terrible gameplay, more like. This is awful. I mean, it's a stinker. Mansell's IndyCar on the SNES is basically the same game as Mansell's World Championship that appeared last year. It uses the same game engine and basically you only have some new tracks. If you've already got the first game, then you're not going to get much fun out of this. These days, to have a successful racing game, it really needs to be full polygonized 3D, like, of course, Virtual Racing on the Mega 32X, uh, or indeed Stunt Race Effects on the SNES. As it is, Nigel Mansell's is very flat in comparison, using sprites instead of the 3D routines. And although it's colorful and fast, it doesn't match up to the more powerful machines. <laughs> to be honest, the most interesting thing I can note from this is that they were reviewing the Japanese copy of this, because that was released as Nigel Mansell IndyCar. Over in the UK, it was released as Newman Haas IndyCar, featuring Nigel Mansell. It was only called uh, Nigel Mansell IndyCar in, in Japan. I mean, Frank O'Connor just buries it. Awful, a stinker. T I get Tim calls it flat compared to um, virtual racing and stunt races. 60%. It's just like, does anyone remember this game? I mean, this is the Bubsy 2 to Earthworm Jim of this particular review segment because obviously they're just drawing direct comparisons with the other game they just talked about. I don't remember it. I do remember World Championship more, which is also basically an identical game. This just has a few extra levels and a bit of reskinning. It's nothing new. Like Street Racer at least did something different. It took Mario Kart, which was already a fairly new take on racing, and added a bit more. You got Virtua Racing Deluxe, 
you got Ridge Racer appearing later, but here we have the same old Mode 7, the same old tired sprite-based racing. Quite a letdown. There is a line later on in this episode from Dominic Diamond when he says the, the Mega Drive and the SNES are nearing retirement, which made me feel very, very sad uh, for this era of gaming. But that's what this game sort of feels like. Everything else is kind of moving things along. You know, Ridge Racer, Virtual Racer, Stunt Racer FX. And this is just like nothing has changed. You've released the same game you would have released two, three years ago, which, which is a massive shame. But I think that is enough reviews for now. Let's get into our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? The second challenge of the proceedings is on the bizarre Super Nintendo beat-em-up Clay Fighter 2. As usual, players have three bounds to reduce their opponents to a pile of formless putty. Good luck. Oh, God, not again. Uh, Asher, you're pleased to see it back. Clay Fighter's here again. Judgment Clay. No. <laughs> I'm sure I found Clay Fighter far more entertaining at the time, but just looking back at it, I'm just like, man, this game is just bobbins and it shouldn't be. I love stop motion animation, but this just feels meh. Yeah, and that is, I think, the harshest thing that you and I can say about Clay Fighter 2. I think that it 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 looks better. Like the, the sort of the graphics on it are sort of more realized than the original Clay Fighter, but like the characters feel so lame. Like, Goo Goo, Kanga Goo, like it's not even trying hard with the sort of those puns. There's no, there's like, this isn't as funny as Blue Suede Goo or anything like that. Like this just, this is Smurfs. This yeah. is, let's <sighs> just find, let's just like, you know, Smurfette, Papa Smurf. Let's just like start sticking the word Smurf into every Smurfing word possible in the hope that someone Smurfs. It is remarkable that we are only one year removed from Clay Fighter, you know, Games Master Series 3 doing that big push for Clay Fighter and the, the tournament we had with um, the Gladiators and stuff. And Clay Fighter 2 feels like a dated concept. Yeah, this game jumped the shark before the second game had even come out. I mean, it was even ripping off of Terminator 2, which was already an old film at this point. Like, Terminator 2 was what, 92, 93? 90, 91, wasn't it? 91, 92? Pussway, certainly not a current comparison you should be making in 1995, which is when this game actually came out. It was developed in-house at Interplay, it involved most of the original team. And not that you could tell, but they actually scrapped the game engine used in the first one. So this was an all-new game engine. Still doesn't hold up great. I, that, that surprised me. I, I said, like, the, the graphics look a bit nicer uh, on the sequel, but it looks like it plays exactly the same. So that's quite surprising to hear that it's a brand new engine. The development cycle for this game, and that includes creating completely new tools, was six months for a stop motion game. The the first one wasn't that particularly well received. I think, you know, it's, there's some humor behind it, but I don't know, man. Like, it was only going to get worse for this franchise because we, you know, wait till we get to 63 and a third. Now, in the original game, Danger Productions did all the stop-motion capture, and they contracted a different company for the sequel. And the producer, Jeremy Airy, was pretty unhappy with the quality of the footage being produced by this new company, to the point where they implemented the sprites and captures of Tiny from the first Clay Fighter into Clay Fighter 2, and Airy described Tiny as the best-looking character in the game. Oof, man... Now, this is airing in November. We can assume it was filmed some point in the month or so previously. This game would not be released in North America until January of the next year. And in Europe, we wouldn't get it until May. A version for the 32X was advertised, but was cancelled 
Prototypes are known to exist, but have not been dumped to the internet yet. Also, a 3DO version was announced and also never got released. This was a turkey. Yeah, this did not do well at all. Real shame. Real, real shame. So, please welcome two of the more aesthetic members of the Emmerdale cast, Ian Kelsey and Camilla Power. Ian, first of all, why is it that there's so many fit birds and blokes on Emmerdale now? Birds and blokes? Birds and blokes. Right. Um, Well, I think there's quite hot, steamy scenes going to be in it. Uh Uh-huh. And has been in it. Do you think that uh, think generally you guys are more attractive than, like, your neighbours' home-and-away counterparts? Without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, you think so? I think so. That's good. I thought so as well. Um, now, uh, Camilla, what's your favourite disaster from Emmerdale? Probably the rave, because it was sort of a bit of a disaster for us, because we started filming and it rained so badly that we had to come and shoot it back after our holiday, and we all sort of had half of it, we had suntans, and the other right. half we were sort of pale. And, and that's worse than the plane falling on people's heads. Oh, then. definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, people being held up in gun sieges and that. Oh, indeed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. yeah you get wet, mate. <laughs> um, and, you know, actually, I, I was, do you know what? I, I'm going to bury their, like, games playing. Not really bury it, but it's not, like, the most dynamic thing. But they're pretty good uh, interviews, actually. Oh, yeah, they have a lot of fun because this is from a period in time. And, hey, guess what? First appearance for Emmerdale on our podcast, but where they were trying to sex up Emmerdale and they even directly refer to it here. Because Emmerdale, previously called Emmerdale Farm, it, it was the archers on television. It was drainage problems in the lower field. It was down at the Woolpacker. It was a role for former Doctor Who companion, Fraser Hines. It was rural soap opera. And then they started to kind of just sex stuff up a bit. And not only by getting attractive young people in, but by having things like plane crashes and massive storms, which are referred to here. Yeah, I was going to say that it's almost like the success of Brookside made ITV reevaluate Emmerdale Farm. I was like, maybe we do need to sex this show up. But for Ian, 1994 and his casting in Emmerdale was the start of his career. He'd only appeared a couple of months before this episode aired, so he was very much a new kid on the block at the time. And he stuck with the show until 1997 before moving over to the BBC for Casualty which he stayed in from 1999 through to 2002, then moved on to Down to Earth, and then moved on to a show called Blue Murder, which I know all about. But he was there for six years before joining another soap opera, this time the BBC soap opera Doctors. Well, that's all that experience from doing Casualty. Oh, definitely. Casualty was a way to set you up for life for dealing with both soap operas and low-level kind of action drama, because Casualty did both quite well. Hmm. Also, to add to his rounds of doing the soaps, he had a year-long role in Coronation Street. So moving down from the field wow. and into the city. is not a fair number of them then? Oh, he's definitely kept busy. Camilla Power, which also, great name. Great, great full name. name. Her full name is Camilla Joy Cynthia Power. Great name. She joined Emmerdale a bit before Ian. She joined in 1993 and stuck with it until 1995 playing Jessica McAllister. And after departing from Emmerdale, she moved on to the stage. She debuted at the National Theatre in 1998 in an adaptation of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. She also had roles in other television series such as Murder in Mind and The Brief. She appeared in Waterloo Road over on the BBC, returning for the second season in 2007 until a character committed suicide after being diagnosed with multiple cirrhosis. Man, that's two episodes in a row we've had a character committing suicide in a soap opera. Also, a connection to Doctor Who and not just Fraser Hines having a role in Emmerdale, she appeared in a 2008 episode of Torchwood called From Out of the Rain. 
It is nice to have a celebrity challenge here with actors from a soap opera who are still in the soap opera that they're there to promote. Yeah, in fact, one of them has literally just joined. He must have just finished filming his first set of episodes. But Dom does ask Ian, why are there so many fit birds and blokes on Emmerdale now? And Ian is just like, birds and blokes? He has no idea how to answer that question. Yeah, mate, you're not with your Rada mates now. This is Dominic Diamond in hell. You're answering questions on birds and blokes. Have you seen Dave Perry over there? You should have expected this sort of question. But Ian eventually catches himself and says, oh, it's because there are going to be some quite steamy scenes in it. And Dom says, oh, are they more attractive than their home and away counterparts? Ian's not sure, but Camilla saves the day by just going, oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, Camilla saves a lot of this, just dives in to be like, it's all right, I'll, I'll pick the new guy up and sort of carry him to the end of this. Oh, bless. Bless. And she then takes the difficult question about, you know, what's your favourite disaster? With actually genuinely a very good answer to this. Because she talks about the rave, and apparently, uh, you know, according to Camilla in the, the clip you just heard, it rained so hard that they had to delay the filming, which means they all went on summer holiday, and then they came back and had to refilm it again. So continuity was an absolute arsake. And Dom does say, are you saying that's worse than a plane dropping on people and killing them? And Camilla's like, absolutely. <laughs> Dealing with unexplained tans and rain was worse than the plane dropping on heads. Okay, while we discuss the plummeting real estate prices in the Emmerdale area, we'll take a quick break. I remember the night we walked barefoot in the wet sand. I remember the sparkle of bubbles in the moonlight. And I remember, too, discovering these delicious little milk chocolate squares with their soft caramel and, ooh, that lovely crunchy bit. And I tried to forget that someone saw fit to name them munchies. I said I tried to forget. <laughs> the mobile phone company with more subscribers than the rest put together has stolen another march. With Vodafone Digital, the only digital service with both national coverage and the option of half-price calls to anywhere in the UK from the urban area of your choice. And the chance to make and receive calls in most of Europe and beyond. Vodafone. Nobody goes further to keep you in touch. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you know where I'm at, I would get a kick from that man. I'll blow you away. I'll blow you away. The Sony Mini Disc can do everything ordinary tape can do. Except on mini disc, you can record digitally. Okay. It has random access. It's capable of taking the odd little knock. And it's as portable as you are. The Sony mini disc, the future of tape. Welcome back. We have two of the finest members of the Emmerdale Brat Pack, Ian Kelsey and Camilla Power, with us about to do the do on Clay Fighter 2. With me, I have a very patriotic-looking Dave Perry, actually. Absolutely. Tonight. Absolutely. Um, Dave, who pushes your buttons? The Emmerdale girls or their Australian soap counterparts? I'd have to say the Aussie girls. Uh, I'm sorry, but I'd find it a bit hard to be romantic with anybody with cow manure under their fingernails. All right, thank you, Dave. I know romantic at heart. Dave, when... Um, Tell us, what's the strength and weaknesses of the characters we're going to see? Well, Camilla's going to be playing as Gugu, who's a large, bad baby, and she has a big rattle, which is very useful for long-range attacks. It's hard to get close to her, but Ian will be playing as Kangagoo, and he has a dashing punch. He's very fast, and she races in and really thwacks her opponent. A very patriotic Dave Perry is in the booth here with the uh, uh, the Union flag on top of his bonds. Uh, but do you know what? Even though he's feeling very patriotic with his bandana, he does prefer the Aussie girls because... You can't trust anyone who's got cow poo under their fingernails. Dom does say, oh, you're an old romantic at heart. But moving on to the game, which doesn't involve cow poo under the fingernails, just a lot of shit on screen. Dave says that Camilla will be playing as Gugu, a big bad baby, and Ian will be playing as Kangagoo, a giant kangaroo with a dashing punch. Challenge gets underway, and in a sentence I can't believe I'm going to say, a kangaroo rushes a giant baby. Here's one of my notes. Ian has worked out some of the special moves already. He has the round one with Camilla being dazed, but fucks around and doesn't go for the kill. He wins. It was slow. And then Ian's worked out that actually you don't need to do the, the, the Balrog charging punch move, which is what Dave Perry keeps talking about, sort of like this diving punch thing, because Gugu's got the, the, the rattle, so they've got the reach. Uh, you know, Dave's like, Ian needs to be doing the, uh, the, the, the charging punch. Ian's figured out actually what all he needs to do is the Eddie Honda 100 hand slap. And like an absolute idiot, Camilla just keeps walking into it. There is a point where it cuts to Ian and Camilla sat there, and he's literally holding the pad in the palm of his hand, and it's just pressing one button. He's literally just pressing the button to do the hundred hand slap because, like, his kangaroo sort of like flails its arms around, and that's it. He's not even looking at the screen. Ian wins. It's not a great challenge. In fact, the entire lead up and the aftermath of the challenge is arguably better than anything that actually happens in the game. It is the cheapest of Street Fighter-type tactics. It's one that doesn't work anymore because they soon remove the ability to really do that from the game by making those static moves like the 100 hand slap, like Chun-Li's lightning kicks, like Blanka's electric. They, they just don't work like that anymore. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a bit sad that Camilla just kept walking into it. But 
she has a great recovery in the post-match. Well, uh, Ian, you were looking pretty uh, pretty furious in there. What were some of your special techniques you were using there? It's the spinning punch. Yeah, it's like, like your dad when he had that little bit of fist Yeah, fight. that kangaroo must have got some tips off my dad, especially with a little tail flick as well. It certainly did. I was watching that. Yeah, that was, uh, that nice was very nice. Actually, yeah. um, Camilla, uh, your defeat, it wasn't very popular with the crowd. You were the I crowd's favourite. I mean, I actually, you know, I really like him and I thought, well, it wouldn't be fair for him to be shown up by a girl on telly. So basically, so I let him win. And, yeah. you and we, we believe that, don't we? Of course you do. Yeah. Well, sorry, five, no. five of us believe you. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she basically goes in there and is like, oh, no, I just let him win. And like, you know, leaving it for the crowd to sort of respond. And literally it is like five people go, yeah. And Don picks up of that and he goes, oh, well, five of us believe you. I love the goblin holding onto the joystick. Like Ian, like has to wrestle it out of it out of his hand. Like and he doesn't even really get to wrestle it away from him. No. What does happen? The goblin, as it's done before, it doesn't want to give up the joystick. So Ian has to pull, and he pulls it, and he does let go of it in such a way where essentially he smacks himself in the dick with the <laughs> Games Master Golden Joystick. There is a moment where he goes oof, and you can tell it's a legitimate oof of. I just slapped myself in the cock with a Perspex case. That is pretty funny. But regardless, one goblin chases him off while the other goblin tries to stab Camilla up the arse with a pitchfork. Awesome. <laughs> All around the country, gamers' lives have stopped just like that. Let's lubricate their limbs once more in the consultation zone. A bit of video chicanery leading us into the consultation zone this week. Yeah, it's a bit nice, isn't it? I had I'd beginning of season two flashbacks after <laughs> yeah. I definitely ascertained that, no, this wasn't just a case of a dodgy VHS. That's what I thought as well. As part of me was like, hang on, though, is this because I am watching this on YouTube, you know, 30 odd years, you know, nearly 30 years later. Is it just a case of it's just a bad transfer? And Games Master is mixing stuff up himself a bit by saying that it's an experiment tonight to find the saddest human beings in the country. Uh, which makes it so sad then when this little shy girl comes up being like, Games Master, does plugging Sonic 1 into Sonic and Knuckles give me any extra features? You mean, is it backwards compatible? Well, it's a little known fact, but it is. Plug Sonic 1 into Sonic and Knuckles and when presented with the no way message, press the A, B and C buttons together. This will allow you to play a hidden 3D bonus game with an infinite number of levels. Try repeating this trick with some of your non-Sonic games. Thank you, Games Master. Games Master, what happens if I put Sonic 1 into Sonic and Knuckles? Oh man, Games Master just called you the saddest gamer in the country. Now, she's asking if it's backwards compatible, to which the answer is no, but also yes. Because we talked about this a bit the other week, which is if you plug in a game that isn't Sonic 2 or isn't Sonic 3, you get a no-way screen, but also kind of a procedurally generated bonus stage. Yeah. So it's yes with a no, if with a but and an and and or. Exactly, yeah. So you hold down A, B and C together, and that launches you into the, uh, the sort of almost infinite uh blue sphere level and i know that it's bloody infinite because i remember as a kid playing it for hours and hours and hours uh, just playing it over play, laying those blue sphere boards all over and over again yeah I, we talked about this a lot of like even how it works you know the sort of the reading of the serial numbers on the rom chips and things like that so it's it's um i i really like this that they they went to the effort to put that in to the sonic and knuckles cart gaze master how do i get one of the really powerful weapons on doom 2 on my pc 
Well, you could collect them, as everybody else does, but if you're really impatient, you could type this code while playing the game. I, D, K, F, A. This will give you all the weapons, including the grizzly chainsaw, but I don't think you should be playing with that. Thank you. That's wrong. You should absolutely play with the chainsaw. The chainsaw is awesome. The Saurus family. I mean, we got uh, some big hitters in the consultation zone this week. Sonic and Knuckles, Doom 2, spoilers, the next one's Donkey Kong Country. Like, these are the three of the biggest games of the time. Yeah, the last one is much more wholesome, which I imagine pleased the Games Master. Games Master, I've had Donkey Kong Country for four hours and I've got to the orangutan level. Can you tell me where the bonus is? Not finished the game yet. Well, the trick on this level of Jungle Japery is to collect Expresso and return to the start of the level, to the ledge that had the Donkey Kong barrel on it. Fly to the left and you'll enter the bonus area full of flying letters, on which, surprise, surprise, must be collected in order. Very taxing. Ah, oh, thanks, Games Master. Games Master kind of like verbally slaps her a bit, going, you haven't completed it yet. Dear, oh dear, what are you even doing here? But it sounds like a Frank O'Connor line based on the review he gives next week. But, says the Games Master, the trick is to collect Espresso the Ostrich, return to the start of the level, to the ledge with the Donkey Kong barrel on it, fly to the left and you'll find a bonus area full of flying letters, which you must then collect in order, and that's it, you get you get the bonuses. I thought it was very cool to see those three games in the Consultation Zone this week. I was kind of a bit down on the Consultation Zone last week. This is just like, oh man, three heavy hitters of 1994, late 1994 no less. Sonic and Knuckles, Doom 2, Donkey Kong Country. That's that's great, man. Donkey Kong Country's not even fucking out yet. But Games Master says that the experiment is over, and as for the saddest person, uh, we have to draw our own conclusions, which says to me that they had no idea who they were going to put in that particular segment. No, not Scooby-Doo. The latest game to occupy the joypads of hapless Mega CD owners is Supreme Warrior, a martial arts beat-em-up featuring the kind of live-action full-motion video that makes the mighty Morphin Power Rangers look like Kozlovsky's Three Colours Red. Using first-person Legends of the Ring-style play, you've got to slog your way past various martial arts adversaries to find a magical mask. If all this looks a bit like those kung fu films churned out by the bucket load from Hong Kong, that's because the full motion video for the game was shot in Hong Kong using the same techniques of wires and cables that have made Hong Kong the capital of the wildly improbable fight sequence. Basically, I jump in and say one line and facing the camera who's actually our cameraman with this really long, funny length. Remember, it's all up to you! Supreme Warrior is just one of a number of similar games being released next year by Silicon Valley-based Digital Pictures. We wanted to create a line of products that would feel to kids exactly the way watching Saturday morning television feels, but instead of just sitting there sort of like little zombies, they'd actually be interacting with some very positive characters. And you don't get more positive than this bird, pushing the course of feminism forward by miles. I'm sort of like a Viking bitch from hell, really. (laughs) 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 You are encountering real people. You are reacting to real people. 
uh, you are a player in a real drama. Yes, you'll be able to get real when Supreme Warriors release for the Mega CD at the end of the year. Other versions follow soon after. I mean, we've got a feature at the end here, and if you thought it was the Ridge Racer feature, you'd be wrong. It's actually one for Supreme Warrior. Um, and we get like a pretty cool, I mean, it's a, it's a you know, a, a press kit that's been given to them, but it is a behind the scenes of making of this game. A, a type of game that I honestly would have thought had already been phased out by 1993. But here we are in 1994, and we're still releasing these first person fighting games. Yeah, with an FMV core, I'm like, they mentioned Legends of the Ring because I remember that being reviewed and I remember us talking about it, but here we have another one. A game that Dom describes as making Mighty Morphing Power Rangers looking like three colours red. That's a joke I get now. I would not have got in 1994. I, I like some of the interviews that we get here talking you know, through the process and stuff and you know, saying about digital pictures and uh, it's going to be an interactive Saturday morning show and all this sort of stuff. Dominic Diamond seems unconvinced. Uh, by a lot of this yeah i mean this game came out for obviously the sega cd it was also a 32x title it also came out for mac and windows it was also available for the panasonic 3do which i would argue is probably the best of the console options to play it on and these like real shit for this like this was filmed on the shaw brothers sets like in hong kong this isn't just some knockoff American production company that's cashing on us. They went to like the legit places, used legit techniques and things like that. It's a shame that no one was really bothered about the game. Yeah, and it's a shame because the actual action sequences look pretty damn cool. They look, well, I mean, they look peak Shaw Brothers, you know. They, they look like there'd be a lot of fun to the point where I'm looking at it going, I'd actually like to see just a movie. Yeah, exactly. Like the, I like these kind of movies. This is definitely my jam. I would definitely buy a kind of 88 films or similar Blu-ray release of something like this. But yeah, some of these talking head bits are not great. Like the guy that says, oh, they're trying to give us the same sort of action we get from a Saturday morning adventure. But rather than having kids sit there like little zombies, have them interact with positive characters. And we then meet one of those positive characters who describes herself as a Viking bitch from hell who we then see having her clothes punched off. I have to think the Games Master edited this together. Like they sort of got, like they cut out a huge chunk that went in between those bits because it completely counteracts the point he just made. To be honest, they definitely did edit it. They definitely reworked this to meet their particular narrative, but it was still a really stupid thing for him to say about a game where you punch someone's clothes off. Uh, and also, they gave Games Master the ammunition for that. It's not like Games Master re-edited this with new footage. They were just working with the footage that was given to them. And I'm not sure that that footage or that part of the game should be in anything you're aiming to market to kids for a Saturday morning show. Power Rangers doesn't, generally speaking, have bikini shots. No, it's not that sort of show. The first Power Rangers movie did have a loincloth wild woman, however, when they went to get their new dino powers or new beast powers or whatever. That bit I remember, but that was a film. Films mm. always did something slightly different. But then we then cut back to Mr. Baseball Cap, who says you're encountering real people. You're a player in a real drama. I would argue both of those points are incorrect. Yeah, this is one of the last releases for digital pictures as well. And like, it feels late in the time. Like, as I said, like, it feels quite passe to be making this sort of game in 1994. Yeah. Now it's time to tread lightly on our loafers as we make our way up to Games Master for the next challenge. 
Actually, I've had enough of challenges for the moment, so I've decided instead to show you a rather interesting feature I prepared earlier. Ridge Racer! Yes, boys and girls, it's here at last. Ridge Racer on the PlayStation, or as the Japanese would say... It's released in Japan in two weeks. It is a next-generation console, and Ridge Racer is the game that proves it. Ridge Racer, one of the most popular arcade games ever, spearheads Sony's entry into the video console market. Three laps to go. All the cars are there, as is that well-known Ridge Racer track, along with its expert driver's extension. Skeptics doubted that Namco could convert the System 22 technology of the original game onto a console, but they've been proved wrong. The PlayStation version is practically arcade perfect, and as you can see, it's rather nippy. This isn't a 4,000 quid arcade coin-up, but a 200 pound console, with Ridge Racer expected to retail at around 30 pounds. We'll have to wait until summer 95 before we can get our hands on it officially, but as the Mega Drive and Super Nintendo edge into retirement, we at Games Master have ordered a bumper box of pants because we are wetting ourselves in anticipation. But speaking of things that aren't passe, speaking of things that are the bloody future, it's a slightly awkward edit to do here because we have Dominic Diamond introducing a challenge and then Games Master saying, we're not having a challenge, we're having the feature instead. So it's kind of a, a bit muddled, but I don't care because what we get here is, I mean, fucking hell. Like this looks like, this is nuts. This, uh, this looks, for 1994, this looks absolutely insane. Considering that we had the indie race thing earlier with Nigel Mansell in the review zone and how like dated that looks, bloody hell, this looks like the absolute future is here. And uh, you know, like it's out on the PlayStation in two weeks time, the cars are there, all the tracks are there. They didn't think Namco could put this onto a console, but they did an arcade perfect conversion. And it's on a 200 pound console on a 30 quid game. I will say this game did not release for 30 quid. This was a 45 quid title. No, but the hype was real. Like the hype that this game gives you is absolutely real. This was a launch title in Japan. It was a launch title in North America. It was a launch title in Europe. And arguably it was one of the top launch titles it was one of the best titles you could get at the time this was a direct rival to the saturn launch title of daytona usa and i have a soft spot for both of them i think the music is better in daytona usa mm -hmm. yeah i think that's fair like the ridge racer music is great but personally i'm better at ridge racer yesterday again while i was doing more testing of rom sets and stuff while i'm continuing to do this kind of retro build I grabbed Ridge Racer. I thought, let's boot this up. Let's see how the performance is. The performance was flawless. And it's amazing for a game that I have not played for probably a decade on the PlayStation with a digital pad, less than 15 seconds. And I was just drifting around the corners, making my way to first place without even having to think. Wow. I just fell right back into that groove and I bloody loved it. And it is so cool to see it here. I didn't get on with any of the sequels as much. And I, by the time it came Type 4 or Rage Racer, I think I'd moved on a bit. But this first Ridge Racer was just, oh, it was something special. And seeing it here and knowing that this would be coming to the home, can't beat it. Absolutely can't beat it. 
And that's what I love about this feature. And like you can see why they pushed to have this in the episode and have this close out this episode because this feels like this is pure hype. This is Dominic Diamond telling you, like, you know that game in the arcade that's got the 3D graphics on it and stuff? That's going to be in your home summer next year. I am excited. The consoles that you've got, the SNES and the Mega Drive, they're nearing retirement. We are wetting our pants in anticipation for this. I'm glad, and I think that Dominic made the absolute right call, that, you know, whoever it was, Dominic or Johnny Fincher, whoever it was, I've got a feeling it was Dominic, to push this into the episode it was such the right call. They're saying that it couldn't be done on the PlayStation. They're saying it's arcade perfect. The arcade game had a development cycle of eight months. Um, basically, they were under pressure to complete before their competitors, so that would be for Daytona. Development of the PlayStation version began in April of 1994 and it wasn't a conversion they started development from scratch because the difference between the 22 hardware the namco arcade hardware and the playstation was so great there was no point trying to start a conversion they had to create Mm. special graphics libraries they had to start it all from scratch and despite technical limitations despite the fact it had to run at a lower resolution a lower frame rate they still managed to get it done and it plays so well I will say, I've never played with the special controller that they show. It was a weird Namco thing where basically the PlayStation was a digital controller. It was a D-pad, four surface button, four shoulder buttons, and a start and select. Mm. But Ridge Racer as an arcade game was an analog game, and Namco clearly wanted to have that option available. And so that's when we got the NEG-Con or the NEG-Con or the NAMCON. I think, you know, released under a couple of different names and a couple of different ways of playing it weird controller i think i did actually try to play with it at one point it was some like in a shop or something didn't get on with it no. it was too weird it was too counterintuitive i don't think I, I i played it with that i would have played it you know when the game came out because a friend of mine had ridge racer and yeah i i just remember being like very very impressed like blown away by the game i don't think i loved it but i was certainly because you know i, I I had my faves at the time of like why I enjoyed it as a racing game, but yeah, damn dude, it was a great game. But oh, this is such an exciting, exciting time to see this game. This is the game that, that spearheads Sony's entry into the home market. And Dom and the team are clearly excited because while they won't get to get their hands on it until 1995, they've ordered a bumper box of pants <laughs> because they are wetting themselves in anticipation. Yeah, they, I mean, these lot will definitely be getting this on import in two weeks' time when it comes out. Right, I'm off now to put Reliant Robins at the front of traffic jams, and we'll see you in the next show. Bye-bye. But I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Ash, it's an interesting one. Uh, this is a, it's a bit of a new one for us here in, uh, in Under Consultation, because this is a last-minute change episode. And I think the way they integrated it gets them bonus points for me. And looking at the rundown of the episode, the first challenge cracking so much fun even though no one won it was so silly and so much fun the news section also pretty damn cool that was that was pretty good the reviews the reviews were absolutely solid even if a good chunk of it was spent dunking on nigel mansell then the celebrity challenge where the celebrities were kind of cool they were kind of fun it was fun to talk about emmerdale but the challenge was bobbin sod clay fighter sod its sequel that brought me down consultation zone that was okay it was fine there was some cool games in there some big name games in there i was okay with the first feature with supreme warrior because it does tickle my kind of hong kong action movie 
danglies a bit. You know, it, it does kind of tick those boxes quite well, even if the game is kind of shit. I also really thought what Games Master did with editing it to fit their own narrative was really funny. And then boom, last minute Ridge Racer edition. Honestly, the actual Ridge Racer edition and the Sega Saturn piece boost this back up where I'm trying to work out, do they override the negative of having to put up with Clay Fighter? That's what I'm trying to work out as well. That's exactly what the same, I'm in the same boat as you are because that Sega Saturn last minute edition and like how Gonzo filmed it was done, like you were talking about like how it was done on a handy camera, that was not a pro-grade camera. There was no like no lighting rigs in there or anything. That was, they went to his front room and just filmed it for like half an hour and they got to play, and they probably filmed him for about 10 minutes and then just played Virtua Fighter for a couple of hours. And then we're like, oh, fuck, we need to get back to the editing base. We can get this into the episode quick. Couple that with the Ridge Racer thing, which was definitely a last minute addition. It really, really warmed me to this episode because this is now, this is like, this episode feels like a turning point for this show. We are moving away from the SNES, the Mega Drive, the Amiga, Master System, Game Boy. We are moving into the next generation of consoles now. Past the 3DO, past the Jaguar, past the CDI the actual next generation of consoles. This is a massive turning point for this series. Without the Saturn news piece, without the Ridge Racer add-on, this episode would be in the 70s. Not even necessarily high 70s, I don't know, maybe 75, 76 at best. The Saturn piece would comfortably push this up into the 80s. And I'm trying to work out how close does the Ridge Racer piece take it to 90 for me? Because I can't understate the importance of that Saturn launch and that Ridge Racer feature. I think the highest I can go is 90. I mm-hmm. don't think I could push above 90 because the Clay Fighter challenge and having to deal with Clay Fighter at all, just no. But I think it warrants a 90 for the coolness of seeing a Saturn so close to launch day. In fact, technically, this was recorded before launch day. This guy got these things kind of on the grey market. Yeah. And was willing to put his name out there as having got them on the grey market. And then seeing Ridge Racer in its early form. Yeah, I'm going to stick with 90%. How about you? I had the exact same score, funny enough. Because for me, like it was... Clay Fighter really dragged me down. Uh, the reviews sort of dragged me down a little bit. While the consultation then had big hitters, there was nothing like massive in there. The Supreme Warrior thing felt a bit sort of dated. But like the... Ridge Racer and like the Saturn thing and the Ridge Racer thing and the last minute nature of this really drags it up. But also, I had an absolute blast with Power Drive and like for every single thing on that hit you know, hit my tickle and tickled my funny bones and I absolutely loved it. So I'm also at ninety percent for this and I don't I, I mean perhaps I'm being a bit uh hyper maybe there's some hyperbole about this statement but I think this is a landmark episode of Games Master and not one that I would have seen coming. This fits into the magazine format narrative that we know they're establishing where the news and the features are becoming more prominent than the consultation zone and also the challenges. And it pays off and it shows how exciting this time was for games and how quickly they were moving to make sure they were at the cutting edge of this. I mean, really, their only real competition at this point was bad influence. But if nothing else, they were in competition with themselves to make sure that they broke as much news as possible and showed stuff that you could only see on Games Master. It's an exciting time. It makes me quite excited for what's still to come this season. And oh, once we hit Series 5, once we're firmly in the era of PlayStation and Saturn, I can't wait to see where we're going. 
But I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule each and every single one of you. You can find us on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to chat with us in real time, if you want to chat with other listeners of Under Consultation, other fans of Games Master, other fans of retro gaming and pop culture in general, you can do so on our Discord, details of which are in the show notes and on our social media. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, which is this show format, but about other shows. We've done The X-Files, Earthworm Jim, Press Gang, Dale's Supermarket Sweep. We'll be doing Bullseye very, very soon, although you might have actually heard it by the time that this comes out. You'll also get access to Under Console Nation, our monthly community podcast. And at the £5 level, you get next week's show one week early and ad-free. But at the £10 level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what do they get? At the £10 level, they get a Patreon-exclusive mug, which is filled with Patreon-exclusive stickers, badges, retro sweeties, retro trading cards, and £5 off our first under-consultation t-shirt, which can be purchased along with other badges, stickers, and mugs from our website, underconsultation.com. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal Williams, Simon, Sean Hannon, Sean Dunn, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Roberts, Rich, Nick, Misha, Matty Boo, Kevin, Jamie, Gordon, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Colin, Cliff, Adam Warrington, Adam Rigby, and Adam D. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Ridge Racer! Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.